Good morning, River Rock Bible Church. How are you this morning? Good. Well, last week we concluded our series, The Art of Neighboring, and I just want to let you know uh, we, we did have some of those books for sale. We ran out, but we've got a couple more this week, so if you're still interested in reading that book, we've got the books on sale back in the back for $5, and it comes with the little refrigerator magnet of the block map or chart of shame, whatever you decide to call it. Uh, so those are back in the back, and this morning we're beginning a brand new series. We're going to be studying through the book of First Peter together over the next few weeks, and uh, we're going to be looking at what can we as the church learn from the first century church? What can we as the modern day church learn from the first century church about our calling, about what it is that God has called us to do and to be? As we saw earlier in 2015, Pew Research released a poll showing that over the past 10 years, there's been an 8% decline in Christianity in America, 8% in just one decade. This study prompted This Week magazine, uh, the news organization, news magazine, to publish an article entitled, Is Christianity in America Doomed? Is Christianity in America Doomed? And they, they talked about what are all the factors that go into why Christianity would decline so rapidly. And I know some of us, we, we hear that title of the article, Is Christianity in America Doomed? And it may feel that way. Because we, const- we feel like constantly Christianity is under attack. And, and I know there was a, a, a tragic incident up in the Northwest this past week where Christianity literally was under attack uh, as that man asked, are you a Christian? And if people said yes, they were executed. But it's, it's also under attack in a number of other ways. As we look at the news, as we think about um, this past summer, the, the ruling by the Supreme Court, we see that the biblical definition of marriage is being attacked. And so we, we see all these things, and, and what we begin to, to feel is that Christianity is under attack, that there's a reason there's a decline, uh, but really what we're seeing is the growing secularization of America. We're seeing a growing secularization where Christianity no longer has the mainstream that it used to. It no longer has the influence over the public mentality that it once did. And for a lot of us, this is kind of scary, and it may freak you out that I'm about to say this, but I think we're going to see this morning that that may actually be a good thing when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to the church. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little while. Uh, when we look at the Pew Research a little bit more in depth, what we see is that Christianity is not actually declining in the sense that few and fewer people are becoming Christians. But when, when you look at the data, what becomes very clear is that the number of people claiming Christianity, yes, is going down. But those that are dropping off are those that are nominal Christians. Nominal Christian or cultural Christian is someone who is a Christian in name only. Um, when they're asked further questions about what they believe, it becomes clear that they don't actually have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. They're just kind of claiming Christianity as their default religion. Well, I'm not Hindu. I'm not Buddhist, not Muslim or Jewish. I live in America. I must be Christian. And what we're seeing is that is beginning to fall off because now as we see Christianity and Christian values and Christian principles come under attack and sort of be moved to the margin of society, now claiming Christianity actually costs you something. And so those who are just claiming Christianity because that's what my parents were are now defaulting to something else. Well, I'm other. 
I'm something other than, or I'm agnostic, or I'm atheist. I believe there's a God, but, um, but you know, I'm not Christian. I wouldn't say I'm Christian, or I'm spiritual. And so we're getting all these different kinds of answers. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing that decline in the nominal Christians where the the number of people who are actually claiming to be born-again Christians is staying about the same. And here's why I think that it may be good that we're seeing that drop in the nominal Christians. Because what remains are those who are going to be a little bit more focused on following Jesus. They're going to be a little bit more serious about his mission, in reaching the lost. Because as it begins to cost you something to follow Jesus, it's not something you take lightly. It's no longer, I just go to church on Christmas and Easter. And what we see, as you look throughout the world, the top 20 countries where Christianity is growing the fastest are are primarily Muslim Middle Eastern countries or uh, places like China, uh, Southeast Asia, where there's a lot of persecution of the church, where it actually costs you something to be a Christian. And it's in these countries where people are being literally persecuted, not like we feel like, oh, someone made fun of me because I'm a Christian, I'm persecuted, but they're literally being persecuted. These are the countries where Christianity is growing the fastest. And I believe that what we're going to see is that as Christianity is moved a little bit to the margin it shouldn't scare us because Christianity not only survives the margin, it actually thrives when Christians are in the margin. And this is what we're going to see as we look at, at uh, 1 Peter. Um, Barna research indicates that there are over 100 million, 100 million people in America that are not connected to a church. 100 million. Of those 100 million, 15 claim to be Christians that are just unconnected to a church. That still leaves... 85 million unbelieving, unchurched people in this country. Keep that number in mind. 85 million. Now add to that the reality that every year, 3,500 churches will close their doors. Every single year. 3,500 churches will close the doors. Those that remain open, 80% of them have either plateaued in their growth or they are declining. They're shrinking. And of the 20% that that are growing, they're growing by transfer growth. They're basically reshuffling the deck when it comes to Christians. And so what happens is you have two churches, and you've maybe got a big church and a little church. And one church shrinks because, you know, this big church, they've got a fancy youth ministry, so a couple families go over there, right? How many cards are in a deck? 52. My wife let me know that I may not be playing with a full deck this morning, but that's okay. When you have kids, stuff gets lost. Um, So there's 52 cards. So we just moved, we split it into two piles. How many cards are there? 52, right? And so I move some over to this pile and maybe a couple move back to this pile and then some break off and they start a new pile over here. How many cards are there? Still only 52 cards. We're just reshuffling the deck within Christianity and this is our main Uh, main thing that we have to focus on is that we can't just continue to reshuffle the deck. We can't continue to reshuffle the deck. It's going to take us as believers living on mission and owning that personal mission. And that's why in those countries where there's persecution, you see the rapid growth of the church is because they understand that and they own that. We've been, been in a privileged position as Christians in the West 
from about the time of Constantine in the 4th century all the way up through probably the 18th, 19th century, Christianity was the dominant worldview. It was the dominant worldview, and we enjoyed uh, what many people call Christendom. Christendom is this alliance between the church and the state where the church has a privileged voice in policy and in the public, and Christianity has a big influence on the way people live their lives. And what we're beginning to see is that Christendom is slowly fading away as we see the growing secularization of America, the growing pluralization of America. Christianity is no longer uh, the once prominent religion that it used to be. It's, it's as people used to go and when they had a time of need, they would go to the church. If they were in need or they had a time of crisis, they would go to the church. Nowadays, they're just as likely to turn to another religion or to turn to a therapist or to go and find a self-help book. Which means that we're going to have to do some things a little bit differently. The decline or the fading away of Christendom is not something that should scare us. It shouldn't intimidate us. But what it should do is make us realize that the way that we have done things as the church, not just this church, but the church for the past hundred years is going to have to change. And I believe that that actually provides us some exciting opportunities for the gospel to go to work. Because it's no longer enough for us to just open the doors on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we're a church, we're here, our doors are open, you come to us. It means we've got to do more. It's no longer enough to just have the best preacher in town and have everyone come to your church. Because then, usually what you see is the reshuffling of the deck. You're not adding new people into God's kingdom. It's not enough to just go out and get the biggest uh, rock star worship leader with um, an amazing laser light show and fog machines. That's not enough. It's not enough to just have an evangelistic event. We're going to have a revival. We're going to have a, a crusade. That's not enough anymore. People aren't interested in that anymore. So it means that we have to change the way that we do church. And I believe it means we have to get back to our biblical calling as the church. And what we see when we look at Scripture is that we are called to be an everyday church with an everyday mission. We're called to be an everyday church with an everyday mission. Now, I don't mean everyday in the sense of run-of-the-mill everyday, that we're just, oh, that's just the everyday way that things are done. But I mean, we are called to be the church every single day. And we are called to be on mission every single day. The Great Commission. Jesus doesn't say, Uh, you know, I want you to go open some churches and invite people to come. The Great Commission doesn't say come. It says, therefore, go. It says go. And so, as believers, we're going to have to get back to the biblical definition of what it means to be the church, which is that we're going to have to go. We're going to have to go, and we're going to have to engage the people around us. We're going to have to live on mission together. The vision of River Rock Bible Church is that we would go into our community and allow every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. The very first few words are about going. We go as individuals into our neighborhoods. We go as a community group uh, with our coworkers. We go as a church and we serve together. We go together. We go. And the reality is that if we're going to reach every man, woman, and child, it's going to take every man, woman, and child. I think a lot of people like the idea of being a part of a church that does a lot of things in the community, and they'll say, oh yeah, our church does this, our church does that, and our church does this, and it's like, well, 
do you do any of that stuff with your church? Oh, no, no, no. But our church does that, right? And we miss the reality that we are part of the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. We are the church. And so this is an exciting time for this. Church is, is a community of people who share everyday life. And missions is not just an event. It's something that we do every single day together. And this is something that the first century church understood. And that's why even though they were marginalized, they were put on the outskirts of society, the church managed to not just survive the margin, but thrive in the margin. And so as we look at First Peter together over the next few weeks, I think we're going to be encouraged by their experience, and it's going to inform us on how we ought to live, because as much as we may not like it, we do have to come to the realization that things are changing, that things are changing, and we can no longer do church the way that church has been done for the last hundred years. If we're truly going to be a church, be the church, it's going to mean that we're going to have to do some things a little bit different. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle. Apostle means one who has been sent, the sent out one of Jesus Christ to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. All right, so this area that he's describing is now, it's called Asia Minor. It's what we would nowadays call Turkey. So he's writing to Christians who are living in modern day Turkey. And he says this, those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the very first few verses, we see a couple things. We see the reality That we as the church, what are we? We are strangers and exiles facing hostility. We are strangers and exiles facing hostility. He uses this language of of temporary residents who've been dispersed. And when you see those words, when you read that language, really a lot of translations will say strangers and exiles directly. But what he's talking about is that these are people who are foreigners. They're living in a foreign land. And... uh, It's a reminder to them that they, because of their faith in Christ, are strangers. They're exiles. They're living in a foreign land that they don't belong in. They're living outside of their native culture. Philippians 3.20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is not on this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And this is language that Peter's uh, audience could relate to. Because the audience that Peter is writing to are living in Asia Minor. They're living spread throughout modern-day Turkey as a colonization effort. See, what the Romans would do when they would conquer a territory is they would then send people living in Rome, Romanized people, out of Rome to go live in those colonies, to Romanize the colonies. But there was a catch. They couldn't make citizens, someone who is a citizen of Rome, move to colonize another area. So they would find non-citizens who had been Romanized and they would transplant them and say, you are now going to live here and you're going to uh, help us Romanize this area. And they would do it because they lived under the benefits of Rome. And you add into that that in 49 AD, Claudius expels a number of Jews out of the city of Rome. And 
At that time, Christianity was closely associated with Judaism, and so a number of Christians were lumped into that. When he kicks out the Jews, he kicks out a number of the Christians as well. He says, you guys have to leave. You can't stay here anymore. And, and many of them settle in this area that we're talking about in modern-day Turkey. And so they're there, they get there, and now they, they truly understand, hey, we're no longer living in Rome. We're not even living in the land, the country that we were born in. We're in a new place. We are strangers. Some of us have been exiled. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. And Paul, uh, Peter is using this language to describe the transitory life on earth. He's defining the relationship between Christian and culture, reminding them that, hey, remember that, that you are not a citizen of this earth, that your citizenship is in heaven, that you, the reason the culture sets you aside is because you don't belong. You belong to something different. You are a stranger. You are an alien. You are in exile living in a very foreign land. Let's continue in verse 3. It says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us new birth and into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorruptible, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he talks about new citizenship, new citizenship by being born again. So there's really kind of two ways that people become citizens of a country. A lot of times you can move there and you live there for a number of years, you obey all the laws, you file some paperwork, you take a test, and then they give you citizenship into that country. The other way people become citizens is you're simply born there. You're born into that country. You're born into your citizenship. And so what Peter is saying is that through Jesus Christ, through new birth in Jesus Christ, when you said yes, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you walked away from that old life, you stepped into a new birth and into a new life and a new citizenship. So now not only are you strangers and foreigners because you've come from Rome or wherever you were before that, and now you're here in Turkey, and you're in a different culture. You're strangers and exiles because you've been given a new birth in Jesus Christ. And the culture that is following Jesus Christ, that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is radically different than anything that the people of this world will understand. So new birth. And when you're a stranger, when you're living in a place that doesn't understand you, then your cultural standards are a little bit different. You're going to face a little bit of hostility. You may face a little bit of persecution. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. He says this, You are being protected by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, though for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. Now what he's describing here is not... They're not quite at the point where Nero is burning people at the stake. There's a little bit of state persecution, but it's not as widespread as it was about to become. But what they're facing is they're facing a little bit of ostracization by their neighbors, by the people that they live around. They're being set aside. Christians were looked down upon. If you became a Christian in that society, you would lose some of your social standing. And he's, so he's saying, look, you're going to face a little bit of this slander. You're going to face a little bit of people making fun of you. In fact, there's a, a, a famous piece of graffiti from this area in, uh, from ancient times, from this same 
time frame, the first, second century, and it's, uh, it's called Alexander Worships His God, is what it says. And as you can see, this man, Alexander, is worshiping a donkey hanging from a cross. And so we see that it was this kind of thing that are the various trials that the Christians were facing. Because he worships Jesus Christ, this man, Alexander, whoever he was, is being made fun of. They're making fun of this man, and it was posted in a place where everyone would have walked by every day, and they would have known Alexander, and they would have known that he's a Christian, and that he's different. He's a stranger. He's in exile, and he's facing persecution. And we are blessed that in this country, we don't face the kind of persecution they do in other parts of the world But if you continue to claim Jesus Christ and claim that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe more and more we're going to start facing a little bit of that persecution. We're going to be called bigoted. We're going to be called names. We're going to be told uh, we don't belong. We're going to be called small-minded. How could you believe in something like that? We've got to be prepared for that. We've got to be prepared for that. And as I said earlier, I do think that that is only going to make the church stronger. So why is, it, why is it that we face this persecution? We face this persecution. The same reason the church in the first century faced the persecution, it's because we worship an unseen and rejected Lord. We worship an unseen and rejected Lord. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Beginning in verse 8, it says, You love him, though you have not seen him, and though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Peter is saying here, look, you worship an unseen Lord. You cannot see him right now. He is seated in heaven and you cannot see him. And this is something that the Roman people cannot understand. If you were to walk around a Roman city or a colony, you would very quickly see their gods. You would see the glorious impact that Rome had on that society. You would see the Roman standard with the Roman eagle as the centurions marched up and down the streets. Everywhere you looked, you would see this flag and this eagle. You would see the magnificent buildings that they built. Not just as a way to... Uh, to get the government run and to provide different things, but as a demonstration of this is how glorious and magnificent we are and we have conquered you. Remember that. Remember that we have conquered you. And so they would have inscriptions and, and things dedicated to the Roman gods. And so it was very easy for the Romans to look around and to say, look at the glory of our gods. But for a Christian whose Christ has been crucified for our sins, rose from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, there's nothing to point to. There's nothing to point to. It's an unseen faith that we have. Something that many people can't understand. And you think about today, you think about our world today, and we see gods all around us all the time. Whether we realize it or not, there are a number of gods that we come face to face with today. 
whether it's advertisements with logos and, and all these things that are put in our face, or you think about a shopping mall. Look at this picture of this shopping mall. This is, uh, I, I like to think that this is maybe Christmas time, that there are this many people at a shopping mall. But, I mean, you just look at this, and, and it, everywhere you turn, you see the indications and the markers of the gods of our culture. They're very visible. And so it's difficult for many people to understand this unseen God that we worship. Not only that, especially for, uh, for the Romans, to worship a rejected God, a God who would die, was unfathomable. Unfathomable, but we're reminded of Jesus Christ's sacrifice that he died for us in his sufferings. As we saw in verses 10 and 11, the Old Testament points us to not just the suffering of the Messiah, but the glory that comes through suffering. Jesus sets an example for us in this. He says, look, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified, but then I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to come back in my glory. And so we have this pattern that Jesus sets for us of suffering followed by glory. Suffering followed by glory. And as the church in the first century, I believe what they experienced was a little bit of suffering. And as they suffered and people saw them and they had opportunity to stand for their faith, then they would have opportunity to speak the gospel into the lives of the people around them. And people would say, wow, you are different. What you say makes sense. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. So they would experience a little bit of that glory. Then they would suffer and then there would be growth in the church as people put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they would experience a little bit of that glory more and more. John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus tells us this. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We might have become outsiders just the same as Jesus was an outsider. Jesus lived on the margin. Jesus was pushed to the margin. In fact, he was pushed to the margin so far that he was pushed onto a cross and out of this world. We should expect no less for ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Christianity has enjoyed a privileged position in society for a number of years, since the fourth century. And I think what I take away from this passage and from the church in the first century that Peter is writing to is that nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to go and, hey, make a Christian nation, make a Christian uh, government. In fact, what we see is the opposite is that, that hey, you're going to face trials. You're going to face persecution. Anything other than that ought to be considered a bonus. And so as we continue to move on, as we continue to think about what this means for us, the, the fading of Christendom and what that means for us, that, that we would remember that we have been chosen by God. Verse 2 reminds us that we have been chosen by him. The world has unchosen us, but God has chosen us. And that should encourage us. That should help us as we, as we go on on our mission He chose us not only for salvation, but he chose us for mission. He chose us to live out and to be a part of the work that he is doing. It's what he's called us to, to be an everyday church 
with an everyday mission. Christianity does not just survive in the margin, it thrives in the margin. And I know we're not facing any of the major persecution that they face everywhere else, but I do think more and more we're going to face a little bit of of that marginalization as believers in Jesus Christ. And I think more and more as we see that it's no longer just enough to open the doors of the church on Sunday morning and invite the community and say, hey, you guys come to us. We're going to see opportunities for the gospel as we go to them, as we live out our calling as a church to live on mission together, to be an everyday church with an everyday mission. At this time, we have uh, what we call Take Two. And this is just an opportunity for you to take a couple minutes and think about what God is saying to you. Uh, I think for some of us, it, it may be difficult to hear that, hey, Christianity is, is no longer the mainstream. It's kind of moving to the sides. But as you think about the news stories that come out, as you see things taking place in our world, um, hopefully you, you start to realize more and more that that, that is happening. And I, my prayer this morning is, I don't say these things to scare us or to get us worked up, but really to encourage us that we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to participate in God's mission together. So maybe there's something that God has laid on your heart to pray for, maybe uh, a step in mission, maybe a step in joining in this community and what we're doing on mission I don't know what it is that God is saying to you this morning, but I just want you to take two minutes to spend some time in prayer and hear from him. Let's take two.